Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Exodus chapter 17, verse 1. It says, Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of Sin, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped in Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. And I have a map there that I kind of pulled up on the internet of, of the, of, I showed it last week, but it's the traditional route. If you see the kind of the red uh, dash lines, that's the traditional route that the children of Israel uh, take. And I know that there's some controversy there. People think that they've went a different way possibly, but um, I'm sticking with that because it's a, it's a good map anyways. But if you'll notice the green arrow, the green arrow. so they went through Mara and Elam, and now they're heading down towards Rephidim. They're on their way to Mount Sinai uh, there uh, in that tip there. So, um, so they're there at, uh, uh, at uh, Rephidim, and there's no water to drink. And you'll recall that they were in Mara before, and their place... Uh, you know, they, they were in Merah, there was no water to drink, uh, and then the Lord, you know, had Moses put that tree into the water, and it turned the water, the bitter water sweet. We talked about that last week. And uh, so that was a time of bitterness. Then they went to Elam, which was really just a, a, a just like an oasis in the desert. And and then now they're here at Rephidim, and, and you know, uh, that's kind of like our lives, isn't it? I mean, we go from those high points, things are just going really great, uh, to the low points, and, and back to the high points. And it's kind of life in general, you know? We've got different things that happen at different times. And so um, I can relate to these different places that they're going in those situations that they're encountering. Verse 2, Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, why is it you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses, he senses that they're contending with him and they're contending with the Lord. And that word contend, it's, it's kind of like a trial, like you're going to a trial and you're presenting your case against somebody. That's, that's really what this word means. It means to raise complaints or accusations against others. And you'll notice that they're, they're, they're accusing Moses of having a bad, uh, um, his motives of being wicked. He says, you know, they said, have you brought us out to kill us in our children? I mean, they're actually thinking that that's what Moses is trying to do. Um, you know, back when they were at the Red Sea, and they, their back was to the Red Sea, literally, and the, or the uh, army of the Egyptians were coming towards them, uh, they also, at that point, accused Moses of having bad motives. They said, because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? So here again, they're, they're accusing Moses of having an evil motive. And you know, the Bible tells us that love, uh, it thinks no evil. Right? First Corinthians 13, love thinks no evil. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. That, that's agape love. And, uh, you know, sometimes, and I'm guilty of it too, sometimes it's, it, it gets easy to, to kind of judge someone's motives rather, you know, they, they might do something and we can judge people's actions, but we need to be really careful judging people's motives 
And uh, so that's what the people are doing here. And so Moses says, why do you tempt the Lord? Now, what do they mean by tempting the Lord? It means to put to the proof or the test. And in verse 7, they're going to say, is the Lord among us or not? So it, it's really, they, they just don't trust the Lord. In fact, Psalm 78 is, is kind of, it goes through the, the uh, history of the children of Israel from a spiritual standpoint. And in verse 41 of Psalm 78, it says, yes, again, they tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. When, when, we, when we don't trust the Lord God, we're limiting his work in our lives. And that's what doubt will do. That's what unbelief will do. It limits God. So, you know, how big is your God? You've heard that phrase before. How big is your God? Can he handle the situation you're facing? The answer, of course, is yes. So don't limit God with your unbelief. Verse 4, so Moses cried out to the Lord saying, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river and go. Behold, I stand before you there on the rock in Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Now, I mentioned earlier that, that I, you know, I showed that map of that traditional route uh, of the children of Israel when they left Egypt. And uh, where they think Riphidim literally is, there's a rock there that actually... They, they think that this is the rock that Moses split in the wilderness. They think that that's it. And, you know, you're looking at it and go, wow, I, I guess I could kind of see that. Um, and so the Lord told Moses to get the, the, the elders of Israel, go with him, go up there and strike the rock with a rod. And uh, Psalm 78, again, verse 15, it says, He split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink in abundance like the depths. He also brought streams out of the rock and caused water to run down like rivers. And so if you can kind of picture in your mind, if now I'm not saying that is the rock, but if it was, you can kind of visualize maybe what, what's taking place or what took place. Now, the Apostle Paul actually refers to this miracle in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In verses 1 through 4, he says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So Paul's trying to get a point across to, the, to his readers there, to the Corinthians. But there was a rabbinical tradition that said that Israel was supplied with, rock, with water by that same rock all throughout their wilderness traveling. That, that's what the rabbis uh, traditionally say, that this rock followed them. Others say, well, no, the, the river of water followed them. And, you know, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know the answer to that. But that's not what point Paul was trying to get across. What Paul was trying to get across was that Christ, our rock, is with us wherever we go, whatever situation we find ourselves in. He is there. He meets our spiritual and our physical needs, even in the bleakest and driest of circumstances. 
And maybe you're going through a really tough time right now. You know, whether, whether it's a time of bitterness or a time of just thirst, spiritual thirst, or just something's going on in your life right now, I want to encourage you, Christ your rock is with you. He hasn't left you. And, and he's there to meet your spiritual needs and your, and your physical needs as well. Um, even in a place where you think, how, could the, how can the Lord even work in this situation? God can work. Trust him. Trust him. Don't limit the God of Israel. And so here Moses is told to strike the, rock, uh, strike the rock with his rod. And I find that fascinating because later on, we won't get to it today obviously, but in Numbers chapter 20, the children of Israel, they're at another place and again there's no water and they're thirsting. And uh, so Moses, they start complaining to Moses again and Moses goes to the Lord, right thing to do, what, Lord, what do I do about this? And the Lord speaks to Moses in Numbers chapter 20, verse eight, you don't need to turn there, but he says, take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together, speak to the rock before their eyes and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring, uh, bring water for them out of the rock and give, to, uh, excuse me, and give drink to the congregation and their animals. So that's interesting. So in both cases, at Rephidim and at Meribah, the rock is a picture of Jesus Christ. Paul even alludes to that there in 1 Corinthians 10. And so the first time that they encounter this situation, they're to strike the rock. The second time, he's not told to strike the rock. He's told to simply speak to the rock. Well, what happened? Verse 11 of Numbers 20 says, And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their animals drank. But Moses did wrong in that case. Because you see, that was a picture of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Throughout the Old Testament, the Lord is giving pictures and, and just showing the children of Israel about the Messiah and, and the characters and the nature of the Messiah. And, and so this was a picture for them of this, this rock that they were to, to get spiritual, well, physical water from, but uh, there was a spiritual application to that. And so the first time the rock was to be struck, the second time it wasn't to be struck. It was simply to be spoken to. But Moses corrupted the picture of Jesus Christ to the people. First of all, he exhibited anger. And God wasn't angry with them. Sometimes we feel like God's angry with me. No, God loves you. Now, he may discipline us when we're in sin, but it's not because he's angry with us. It's because he loves us as his own child. And so he's trying to, he's trying to train us and trying to, trying to get us to, to, to throw away those things that shouldn't be in our lives anyways. But it's not out of anger, it's out of love. And so he, he corrupted that picture. God wasn't angry with them. And the rock was only to be struck once. Why? Well, the writer of Hebrews, I think, gives us, I think, a good answer. Hebrews 10, verses 11 and 12. It says, And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. The picture, Christ only needed to be struck once. He only was crucified once. 
And now we just, we just speak to the rock. We, just, we come to the Lord Jesus Christ in prayer. We confess our sins. You know, he's not crucified for each one of us over and over and over again. He did it once and for all, for all time. Praise the Lord. Well, I have, and I, again, I, you know, I want to bring this up, but it's, it's, if you grew up in the Catholic Church, maybe you're Catholic here this morning, I, I, I want you to understand, I'm not trying to come against you personally at all. Um, but I have a problem with the Catholic Mass. I didn't grow up Catholic. But I have a problem with the Catholic Mass because, you know, in the Mass, Christ is being crucified over and over and over again. Every time you do a Mass, he's, 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 you know, he's being crucified. And, you know, it's interesting if you look at the, the crucifixes that, you know, generally, and I'm, I'm, maybe I'm stereotyping, but generally the Catholic crosses, Jesus is still on the cross. The crosses we have here, Jesus is off the cross because he's already, he's rose from the dead. He, he paid the price already. It's done. It's a done deal. So, again, the rock was only to be struck once. Now it's just to be spoken to. I want to draw your attention to verse 5 because there's something involved with ministry, I think, that pops out here. The Lord told Moses to take with him some of the elders of Israel. Now, why did he tell him to do that? And I don't know a definitive answer, but, you know, Moses was already elevated in the sight of the people when they went through the Red Sea. God was revealing that Moses is my representative, you know, and, and so he was using Moses. And, and in fact, we read after the parting of the Red Sea, it says, the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. So Moses was already in a position where he was, he was revealed as being God's chosen leader for the children of Israel. However, Moses was not to be worshipped. It wasn't like it wasn't the Moses show. <laughs> Moses does everything and, and you know, you're just people are there for the ride. You know, that's, that's not the case. The Lord wanted others to be involved with the ministry. And I think that's why he said, bring some of the elders with you. There's a principle, I think, that comes out in this passage as we're looking at, and that is this. Ministry is not a one-man show. It involves the whole body of Christ. And, you know, I'll tell you, pastoring a small church like this, you know, especially when you start out and there's like, you know, a handful of people at the most, uh, you do everything. And it's not a big deal because you're a small fellowship, you know. And even now, today, you know, I can do everything. Well, I can't do everything, but, you know, I do a lot of stuff. Um, and it's easy for a pastor in a small church to do a one-man show. And some pastors, that's their nature. You know, they just, they can't let go of things. They got to have their hands on everything. And for me personally, I'm just sharing with you as a pastor, that the Lord's been laying on my heart, hey, let it go and let others, you know. And yeah, maybe they don't do it exactly the way you would do it, but just let it go and let it. And so uh, I'm working on that in, in, in my own situation. But I think that's why the Lord had Moses bring the elders uh, with him to that place. So now we get to another event here at Rephidim. And it says, now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. Now, that's the name of a person, but it's actually a nation, the Amalekites, that's being referred to here. The Amalekites descended from a man by the name of Amalek. And Amalek was Esau's grandson. Esau was Jacob's brother. You recall that uh, from our study in Genesis. Esau and Jacob were twin brothers. They weren't identical. They, uh, uh, Esau was very hairy. Jacob wasn't. Um, Jacob's name means supplanter or, or heel catcher. 
And God does a work in Jacob's life and changes his name to Israel, which really can be translated led by God. So Israel is a picture of people that are led by God. Esau, if you look at his life, he's just driven by the flesh. He's not led by the spirit. He's driven by the flesh. He's, all he wants to do is satisfy his flesh. And, and that could be a whole Bible study in itself. But so the Amalekites in the Bible, they are a picture or a type of the flesh. So when you look at that, you can, you can see some symbolism there. So the children of Israel, of Esau, excuse me, the Amalekites, or as are said here, Amalek, they're at enmity with the children of Israel, or the children of Jacob, which are the Israelites. And you know, that's true in a spiritual standpoint. Those that, you know, being led by the Spirit, being driven by the flesh, that's, a, that, that's an enmity. In fact, Galatians 5.17, for the flesh lusts against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. And, you know, if you've been a believer for five minutes, <laughs> you know that struggle. There's there, your, your spirit. You, you just you want to serve the Lord. You 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 want to you, you want to not sin anymore. And there's that flesh that we're always dealing with. We're always struggling with the flesh. And I got news for you. It's going to be a constant struggle throughout your life. There's your flesh is always going to want to rise up, and so um, they're contrary to one another. And so this picture here of Amalek coming and fighting with the children of Israel, it's really a picture of the flesh fighting against the spirit. Verse 9, And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses and Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the mountain, or excuse me, top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. So this rod of God, it's, it's really a symbol of God's presence and his power with Moses. And so raising it up to heaven, raising his hands with the rod up to heaven, it's symbolic of looking to the Lord for his strength and for his power. And it's really a picture of prayer, of, of, of turning to the Lord and, 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 and asking his, for his strength and for his power. And so when Moses lifted his hands up, it says that Israel, which is led by God, again, that's, a, you know, that translation, that Israel prevailed. As long as the hands were lifted up, as long as he's looking to heaven, that Israel prevailed. But Moses is in his 80s. And, and you know, even a young guy, you, you know, all day, I, I can't hold my hands up all day. Can you imagine an 80-year-old man trying to do that all day? He's getting weak and tired, and so his, his hands are dropping down. And, and every time his hands drop down, the Amalekites start prevailing in the battle. And Aaron and her are watching this, and they we can't we can't we can't do this, and so they set Moses down on a rock. He sits on a rock, and they lift up his hands. They hold his hands up so that his hands are continually raised up. Uh, verse twelve it says, "But Moses' hands became heavy, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and her supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun." Man, what a beautiful picture that is of coming alongside somebody in intercessory prayer, praying for someone, lifting someone up, praying for them in their struggles. Coming alongside a, a, to support a brother or sister in their war against sin. Because we all struggle to come alongside a brother, man, or sister, you know, 
let me pray for you or, or how can I encourage you and just being there for one another. That's what the body of Christ is supposed to do. And it's also, I think, a model for ministry. Coming alongside God's chosen leaders to support them, pray for them, and lift up their hands in the battle. I tell you, man, if you get in ministry, man, you've got a target on your back. The enemy wants nothing better than to, to shut down any ministry that he can. And he'll do it through the flesh. He'll do it through external means. He'll do it any way he can because he hates us. And, and so, man, it's so important to be praying for, lifting up and supporting those that are serving in ministry. Again, ministry is not a one-man show. It involves the whole body of Christ. You see a beautiful picture of that here. Verse 13. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. So Joshua, he's the one that's going to be leading the children of Israel into the promised land. Remember, Moses isn't going to be able to go in because he's in Numbers 20. He ruined the picture of Jesus Christ and he misrepresented God. And as a consequence, once they were ready to cross into the promised land, God says, you're not going to do it. You're not going to go in there. You know, it's, it's kind of cool about the Lord. Well, it's kind of cool. It is cool about the Lord. In his grace, so Moses, he asked to go on top of Mount Pisgah. I think it's Pisgah. I don't know if I pronounced it right. But to look down, or Nebo, one of those two. He, went, he was going to look down. He wanted to see the promised land, just to see it. You know, and so the Lord let him see it. And, but he didn't go in. And he, and he died, which is in modern-day Jordan, somewhere in that area. Moab is where he was buried. And the thing is, the cool thing is, later on in the Gospels, at the Mount Transformation, Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus on the mountain in Israel. I think God's such a merciful God. He, he's still in his grace. He allowed Moses, you know, to eventually he was allowed to be in, in the promised land, so to speak. Anyways, that was kind of a side, side thing. So, because of the Amalekites... The children of Esau, the descendants of Esau, hated the children of Israel, and they ambushed the children of Israel here. And there's going to be some other battles that we'll see later on as we go through the Old Testament. When the children of Israel were to get into the promised land, they were to wipe out the Amalekites. Spare nothing. Spare no one. Just wipe them out. And, uh, and uh, they did to some extent, but they, they didn't completely. Um, later on, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, Israel's first king by the name of Saul, the Lord tells him, uh, I will, I'm going to punish Amalek. It's in 1 Samuel 15. He says, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up out, of, out from Egypt. He's referring to this incident that we're reading today. He says, now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep and camel and donkey. You go, wow, that's pretty severe. Think about it. If it's a picture of the flesh, it has to be severe. You know, we have to, as Paul says in Romans, we need to reckon the old man dead. Dead, that's flesh. We need to reckon the flesh dead. It's been nailed to the cross. And so we can't compromise with our flesh. 
And Saul in 1 Samuel 15, it's a picture of somebody compromising with the flesh because he didn't want, he spared some of the best sheep and, and he spared Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And as a result of his disobedience, there was a consequence. He had to give up his throne. His throne, the throne of, uh, you know, passed on to, to David, a man after God's own heart. Because Saul didn't wipe out the Amalekites, again, he was punished in that sense that he, you know, he couldn't, the throne was taken away from him. And, you know, for you and I, not dealing with the flesh, the sinful flesh, not putting to death our sinful flesh, there are ramifications for it. And so I'd like to say, you know, now the rest of the story. Go to the next. There we go. You guys remember him, right? Maybe, maybe, maybe you don't know him by picture, but Paul Harvey, you used to hear him on the radio years ago. And he would tell a story, and at the end he'd go, now for the rest of the story. And uh, so what's the rest of the story? Well, later on in the book of Esther, remember Haman, the evil Haman that was going to, he wanted, he was like a, a, an Old Testament version of Hitler, wanted to, wanted to completely wipe out the Jewish race. We find out that Haman was the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. He was a descendant of Agag. So, you know, not dealing with the flesh, this is my point in all this, it has ramifications. It has ramifications. And so Amalek here ambushes the children of Israel at Rephidim. And as long as Moses' hands are lifted up, they prevail. And Aaron and Hur, they come alongside to enable Moses to keep his arms raised. What a beautiful picture of coming alongside somebody and, and ministering, praying for them, supporting them. And, uh, and so as a result of that, the children of Israel prevail over the Amalekites. Verse 15, it says, And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner. For he said, Because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. The Lord is my banner. The word is Jehovah Nissi. And that word banner, it, it, it's an ensign or a flag or a standard. You know, it's what armies in those days, they would rally to the standard. They, the, the, the ensign that represented their, you know, their, their army, basically, they would, they would fight under it under the authority and under the, the symbol of that banner. And, uh, and so <clears throat> the children of Israel, uh, or excuse me, Moses, he says, the Lord is my banner. He's my ensign. He's my flag. And I want to read this to you out of Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10. It says, in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, who shall stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. So here is this picture that we're seeing starting to form, and, and the picture is that the Messiah was to be a banner. We get the victory as we're surrender, as we're submitted to Jesus, as we're as we, as we are, our lives are surrendered to Christ. That's where we get our victory in any battle. And so the Messiah would be a banner to his people is what Isaiah is prophesying here. Now it's interesting, again, we're not going to get to numbers this morning. Hopefully you're like, I hope he doesn't get to numbers this morning. Uh, but in Numbers 21, um, you'll recall that the children of Israel, they were complaining. That's kind of a, kind of a standard thing for them. They were complaining and grumbling and stuff, and, and the Lord sent poisonous snakes 
and the snakes were biting the children of Israel, and many of them were dying as a result of that. And so Moses intercedes for the people, and that's a whole other Bible study, but, but then the Lord says, okay, Moses, take a, a serpent, make a bronze serpent, set it up on a pole, and uh, when the children of Israel look to that pole, when they look to that serpent, they'll be healed. And uh, so there's a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ on the cross there. Again, that's a totally separate Bible study, but um, everyone who looked in faith to that bronze serpent was healed of the venomous snake bites. Now, the thing is that pole, it's the same word, ensign. It's the same Hebrew word for the banner here. So Jesus even said in John 3, verses 14 and 15, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And Jesus said, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. And so there's this picture starting to form for the children of Israel, this banner. That's Jehovah was their banner. Jehovah was what they were getting their victory through. And uh, last week I mentioned this. You know, the children of Israel were in Merah, which means bitterness. They didn't have any water. It was a, it was a tough time. It was during that time that the Lord revealed his name to another character of himself to the children of Israel. It was Jehovah Rapha, for I am the Lord who heals you. And now, and that was in a place of bitterness. And then they go from the place of bitterness to Elam. And in Elam, there's no record of the Lord speaking to them. Elam was a place, it was like an oasis. It's like a, it's like a resting stop. And you and I, we get that sometimes in our lives, right? Praise the Lord for the fact that he lets us go to some of these Elams once in a while. You know, we're not always constantly in the dry desert, you know, just struggling throughout our whole Christian life. He gives us those breaks, those times of just breathing room. Praise the Lord for them. But it's in those difficult times that the Lord reveals his character to us. You know, we hate that, right? I, I don't want to go through a difficult time. I don't want to go through a time where I have to cry out to the Lord and be on my knees and, Lord, I can't do this. I, you know, it's tough. I hate that. But that's the time when the Lord reveals his character and his nature to us through those tough times. And so if you're going through a tough time today, I want to encourage you, man, just go to the Lord because he'll reveal himself to you. He's going to reveal more of his character to you and more of his nature to you, and he'll meet your need wherever it is, wherever it is. He's there for you. He loves you. So we get to chapter 18. It says, And Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah, Moses' wife, after, she had, after he had sent her back with her two sons, of whom the name of one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. And the name of the other was Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. Now he had said to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down, and kissed him. And they asked each other about their well-being, and they went into the tent. So we have this beautiful family reunion here. You go, what, what, what do you mean? What happened? Back in Exodus chapter 4, verses 25 and 26, Moses, he's on his way to, to, to go to Pharaoh. He's, he's, he's got his ministry. 
He's got his marching orders. Go to Egypt, tell Pharaoh, you know, set my people free. And so he's, he's starting out in ministry, but he hadn't circumcised his own sons. And, and so at that point, uh, uh, Zipporah, you know, God was ready to kill Moses before he even started his ministry. And so Zipporah, out of anger or whatever, frustration, she circumcises her sons. And then, and then there's that whole, you can read that later if you want to follow up on it. But anyways, as a result of that, there's a separation. And whether Moses sent him away or, or whether she left, it's, it's, it seems like Moses sent her away. But whatever the case was, they were separated. And now Jethro, Zipporah's uh, father, is bringing them back to reu reunite with Moses. And you go, you know, this seems kind of weird because it just talks about Jethro and Moses. That, you know, they kissed each other and then they went into the tent and we'll see how they talk to each other and stuff. And what happened to that? What about the husband and wife? I mean, you would think that would be the big, you know, let's make a big, let's do a chapter or so in the Bible about this. Um, I thought about that. You know, the, the narrative regarding Moses and Jethro, it doesn't really involve Zipporah and his sons. Or, yeah, Moses' sons. But it doesn't mean that there was anything negative in their relationship. It doesn't mean that there wasn't like a, a very meaningful gathering together. It's omitted simply because it's not germane to the story, to the text. And, and, and uh, besides, if you think about it, Moses is the writer of these books that we're reading right now, the first five books of the Bible. This probably was a very personal thing for him, I'm guessing. And so for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit chose not to reveal that, that the nature of their reunion there to us. And I guess I'm okay with that. Um, but uh, if there was more to it, I think the Holy Spirit would have revealed more to us, that, that we could learn something from it. In any event, verse 8, And Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them on the way and how the Lord had delivered them. Then Jethro rejoiced for all the good which the Lord had done for Israel, whom he had delivered out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods, for in the very thing which, in which they behaved proudly, he was above them. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and offered sacrifices to offer, and other sacrifices to offer to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. So Moses basically just sharing a testimony. Well, we came to this tough spot, and and this is what the Lord did. It's really that's sharing your testimony with people. You know, this is what was my life was like, and then the Lord intervened in my life and this is this is what's happened and so Moses is doing that he's sharing a testimony of all that the Lord has done in his life uh, since they were last together and it says Jethro uh, he was the priest of, of Midian we find that earlier in uh, the scriptures and he's the father-in-law of Moses he may not have been a monotheist uh, meaning you know a worshiper of one God it's possible he could have been a polytheist. I'm not sure. Maybe some experts know, but I, I don't know. But in any event, whether he was a monotheist or you know, whether he was a worship priest of the Lord God, hearing Moses' testimony had an impact on him, and he worships the Lord. And I think that's such a cool thing because your impact, your, I mean your impact, your testimony has an impact 
And it's your testimony. Nobody can take it away from you. And you share it with people. Share with the Lord how the Lord's involved in your lives. And the Holy Spirit can use that to minister to people. And so, verse 13. And so it was on the next day that Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood before Moses from morning until evening. So when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did for the people, he said, What is this that you're doing for the people? Why do you alone sit and all the people stand before you? Uh, from morning until evening. And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a difficulty, they come to me, and I judge between one another, and I make known the statutes of God and his laws. So Moses' father-in-law said to him, the thing that you do is not good. Both you and these people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out for this thing is too much for you, and you are not able to perform it by yourself. Listen now to my voice. I will give you counsel, and God will be with you. Stand before, the, uh, before God for the people, so that you may bring the difficulties to God. And you shall teach them the statutes and the laws, and show them the way in which they must walk and the work they must do. Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place over, the, uh, over such them to be rulers over thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, rulers of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Then it will be that every great matter they shall bring to you, but every small matter they themselves shall judge. So it will be easier for you, for they will bear the burden with you. If you do this thing, and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure. And all this people will also go to their place in peace. So Moses heeded the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he said. And Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. So they judged the people at all times, the hard cases they brought to Moses, but they judged every small case themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went his way to his own land. Here Moses, God's chosen leader for the children of Israel, and yet he's humble enough to receive counsel from his father-in-law. That's, that's awesome when you look at his, his character, Moses' character. And so Jethro here recognizes three dangers that are associated with the Moses show. You know, do everything, the Moses doing everything himself with a one-man style of ministry. There's, and there is problems with that. And the problems are this. First of all, Moses the man himself. You could put a name of a minister, the, the ministry or the, the worship or the... Uh, uh, whatever the ministry leadership is, the, that, that person, they're going to suffer because they're going to burn themselves out trying to meet everyone's needs. And I, like I said, when you start out with a Bible study, you've got six people, it's pretty easy to meet everybody's needs because it's, you know, it's not that big. As you grow, it gets harder and harder. And you need people to come alongside uh, because otherwise the minister himself can burn out. And that can happen. Um, so the man, Moses the man can suffer. In that style of a one-man ministry. The people Moses was trying to minister to would also suffer. Because as there's more and more people and there's more and more needs and there's problems going on, pretty soon Moses isn't going to be able to meet everybody's needs. And so some people are going to leave with unmet needs. Man, that's the one thing I always pray. Lord, I pray that people's needs are met at Calvary Chapel, Rochester. 
that nobody leaves coming in here and then leaves like, oh, nothing happened. You know, I, I always pray that people's needs will be met here in, in the church here. Because, that, that, again, that's why we're here. So the man, Moses the man would have suffered, the people would have suffered, and ministry itself suffers. Because other competent and recognized leaders are not given the opportunity to participate and utilize their God-given talents and abilities. That's how ministry grows. You know, I don't have every gift. (laughs) My wife can testify. There's certain areas I'm not gifted in. She's gifted in other areas. You're gifted in other areas. That's the body of Christ. We, We need all the spiritual gifts at work to be an effective, growing, healthy ministry. And so uh, this advice that Moses is getting from his father-in-law, whether he, whether he was a priest uh, of the Lord or not, it was godly advice that he received. The Lord spoke to Moses through that. And I, and I love how Moses receives it. You know, there's a similar thing that happened to the apostles. It's in Acts chapter 6, and I'll read it to you, verses 1 through 7. It says, Now in those days when the number of the disciples were multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. So what's the result of having other people involved in ministry? Health first, a healthy body, and a growing body. And that's, again, I go back to that same slide, ministry is not a one-man show. It involves the body of Christ. Now, you're hearing this, and, and again, I, wanted, I hope this isn't encouraging, not a, like a, you are not involved in ministry, you guys need to be involved, you know, you, have you been praying for me this week? You know, it's not that at all. I want to encourage you, okay? This is, this is just meant to encourage, it's not to lay any guilt trips on anybody, but I want to encourage you. We're a small fellowship here, and you might think, well, you know, it's so small, things can get done, they don't need me. Well, no, we would like you to be involved. We, we would like you to, because I think it's good for you, it's good for the fellowship, and our ministry will grow. Um, you know, it's healthy for us to all be utilizing our gifts. So I just want to encourage you in that uh, regard to come alongside and, and to minister. That's why we did that thing in the back there. We have the, the list of ministry opportunities, and, uh, and man, some of you, have come forward and, and started doing things, and it's it's a blessing. It really is a blessing. And I want to thank you for being responsive to that. But I just want to encourage you in that. And so we see a beautiful picture, I think, of, of ministry here and uh, what ministry should look like. It shouldn't be a one-man show. And, uh, you know, I'm not getting any younger. Someday I'm not going to be on the scene here. And, uh, I, I you know, if, it, if, if I had my fingerprints on everything and then and then I fade away or whatever, you know, then the, the, the church falls apart. Well, you don't want that to happen because the church isn't me. It's all of us. We're the body of Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. Hey, um, 
why don't you stand up? Let's go, Lord, in prayer. And then we're going to have communion. I'll have the worship team come on up. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I thank you for each and every person here this morning. Lord, there's no, no accidents. There's no coincidences. Lord, you, you brought us together. And Lord, you wanted to speak to us this morning. And so I thank you for speaking to us. And Lord, I pray that uh, all of us here might leave encouraged this morning and more in love with you. And Lord, I, I just thank you for everybody that considers Calvary Chapel Rochester their home. Lord, I pray your blessing upon them. We pray for their marriages. Lord, we pray for their families, their children, and, uh, and for their, their, their lives, Lord. And, and I just thank you for them. And Lord, we thank you that, uh, Lord, you paid the price once and for all for our sins. Lord, that you're not getting crucified over and over and over again. Lord, you, you paid the price once and for all. And now, Lord God, all we need to do is come to you in faith and in prayer and, and just turn to you, and we'll receive that which we need, Lord. And so, Lord, this morning, we turn to you. We thank you for your sacrifice. We love you, Lord God, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Holy, 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 Lord God. Blessed Trinity. 